Greetings, and welcome to the Fall 2010 SLIS Colloquia, a program now in our ninth consecutive semester brought to you by your School of Library and Information Science here at San Jose State University. I am Dr. Anthony Bernier, and along with Dale David, our technical producer, we are offering this series as part of our school's vision to be recognized as a leader in graduate education in library and information science. Before I introduce today's colloquium speaker, a few announcements. First, please look for new colloquia presentations on the SLIS website throughout the fall term, where you will find a, an archive of all of our previous recorded presentations on the SLIS homepage, slisweb.sjsu.edu. We also offer our colloquia as free podcasts. Details of how to access the presentations, either through RSS feeds or through the iTunes store, can be found on the school's colloquia page. The SLIS colloquia can also be viewed by, uh, via Blip TV, the popular video sharing website. The SLIS Blip TV channel can be accessed at sjsuslis.blip.tv. For our SLIS students, I would like to encourage you to visit a special website detailing the many social networking opportunities the school offers for you to connect virtually and otherwise with other SLIS students. It's our own SLIS social networking wiki where you will find all of your favorite networking resources, Ning, MySpace, LinkedIn, Google Groups, Flickr, Facebook, Digo, among many others. The school also maintains another wiki called Cool Web 2.0 Tools, which offers a way for you to share and learn about the rapidly changing information resources you will want to know about in your program. While these previous announcements were intended primarily for our SLIS students, I also have a few items to share with everyone in the SLIS community. As you may know, the school maintains a robust profile at our professional associations. So I'd like to call your attention to the school's upcoming professional conference appearances for four of this fall's present, uh, professional events. Everyone is invited to attend our reception at this year's Internet Librarian Conference on 26 October from 5.30 to 7 p.m at the Monterey Marriott in Monterey, California. The school will also host a reception at this year's 55th ARMA conference. ARMA stands for the Archives, Records, and Management Association. The SLIS reception will be on Monday evening, 8 November, at the San Francisco Marriott. And we are going all out at this year's California Library Association conference, outpacing even our own blistering reception schedule a lecture, and two receptions all in one day. On Saturday, 13 November, from 3.30 to 4.30, SLIS's new director, Dr. Sandy Hirsch, will deliver a lecture entitled Shared Visions for the Future at the Sheraton Grand in Sacramento, California. Dr. Hirsch's lecture will be followed immediately by two different receptions. The first, for members of CLSA, the California School Library Association, will be held between 4.30 and 6 and hosted by the school's new teacher librarian program coordinator, Dr. Ann Reedling. The second reception will host our entire SLIS community, also between 4.30 and 6. The lecture and both receptions will both be held at the Sheraton Grand in Sacramento, California. Of course, you will find all of the details for these and upcoming events on the school's webpage. 
The faculty hope to see you at these professional conferences and encourage you to take the opportunity to become better acquainted with us as well as to meet up with classmates and colleagues and friends. We hope you enjoy our fall colloquia presentations and thank you for helping to make it a successful series. Linda Cervantes has been the executive director and county librarian of Santa Clara Library since 2002. The Santa Clara County Library has been ranked by Halper, Hennon's American Public Library Ratings, in the top 10 uh, of its size nationally for nine years and has earned either a three or a four star library rating by Library Journal's Americans, America's Star Libraries for two years. Before coming to the Santa Clara Library, Ms. Cervantes served as Deputy County Librarian for the Contra Costa County Library in California. She was the director of the City of Teagard, Oregon Public Library. Uh, she was the director of the Pinal County Library District in Arizona. She has held management positions in public, community college, university, and special as well as school libraries in Alaska, Arizona, California, Ohio, and Oregon. Throughout her 30-year career as a librarian, Ms. Cervantes has been active in local, state, and national library associations. Currently, she serves as the um, serves as co-chair of the Silicon Valley Reads Advisory Board. She has served as chair of the California Library Association Legislative Committee, chair of the Urban Libraries Council Forecasting Strategies Group, chair of the Public Library Association Legislative Committee, and a member of the Public Library Association Nominating Committee. Above, uh, above and beyond all of these professional accomplishments and achievements, however, it's Ms. Cervantes' current role as chair of the Board of the Urban Libraries Council that was most compelling in seeking her as our colloquia speaker today. And it is that broad institutional overview that uh, about public libraries that she will address in today's talk entitled Public Libraries, Evolution or Marginalization. Please join with me and the rest of the SLIS faculty in welcoming to SLIS, Ms. Melinda Cervantes. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you for including me in the um, School of Library and Information Science program, uh, colloquium program. Uh, it's, it's truly a pleasure. I've, I've been uh, in the area for about eight years and uh, have viewed many of these programs online, but I have not had the pleasure of, of speaking before uh, such an austere group. Um, I'm very excited to be talking uh, about a, a number of things, not the least of which are public libraries uh, where we are today, a little bit about how we got here, and uh, is a room for us tomorrow in, in the future of, of information. Uh, there are many challenges, as, as many of you know. So uh, starting, starting at the beginning, evolution. Um, public libraries in the U.S. have successfully evolved over time. Uh, we have gone through many, many changes. We, um, some of us have been around um, since card catalogs and, and have, you know, moved uh, rather easily into digital formats. Uh, we have seen transitions probably in the area of circulation at, at great next speeds in the last few years. And uh, we are um, fortunate in Silicon Valley to have, to be the home of so many of the um, organizations out there that are trying to manage information and, and uh, make information available online, not the least of which are Google, Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. Um, 
my question is, is it too late for public libraries? Are we beginning to be um, pushed, pushed aside? And there, there is a, a fear and an opportunity uh, in all of this. Um, I certainly don't think it's something that's going to um, uh, marginalize public libraries, but I do think we need to be paying attention, and I think it's going to be critical that we not sit back and let something happen to us. So, you have to understand what marginalization is. Um, this is confining, this is relegating, this is pushing aside or pushing a, a group out to an outer limit, um, and in its most extreme form, uh, exterminating uh, groups. And, and I fully believe that is not going to be happening to public libraries in any case. Now, evolution is, is the change in the inherited traits of a population of organisms through successive generations. So after a population splits into smaller groups, the groups evolve independently and may eventually diversify into a new species. And I think there's a lot of correlation here for libraries um, and public libraries being the focus. You know, we, we have each of us uh, and in California, I'll speak to, um, organized in a way that makes sense to the communities that we serve. We have taken opportunities as they've, as they've presented themselves. Um, we offer services today that we never thought we would offer uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And so we are constantly um, evolving. It's also not a surprise that there are usually two opposing forces when you think about evolution. Um, there are processes constantly, you know, introducing variations, and you might want to think about, you know, Apple. Now, I, I'm, I happen to serve the Santa Clara County Library uh, and the community of Cupertino, which is the home of Apple, so it's very prominent in the library. Uh, and in that particular community, we think about Apple all the time. Uh, my office is actually in Los Gatos, which is the home of Netflix. So it's pretty much there. I drive by these very large facilities uh, almost daily and, um, and do think about and do try to talk to uh, these different agencies. And what you find with these companies is that um, they step outside of their immediate uh, workplaces. They go and explore and do research, and many of you who are watching may uh, be aware that Apple started attending ALA con uh, conferences a few years ago. They kind of blew in in a very big way. They set up really wonderful exhibits, and we were all very excited and, and I think, um, uh, pleased, impressed that they were there. And then about three years goes by, and they're not there anymore. They kind of came in and got what they needed and, and left. And um, we're all users of Google. We're all users of Apple products. It's not a bad thing. It's just an example of looking out at other types of, of organizations that are delivering services or, or delivering information and kind of gleaning from that group the very best. Uh, the bookstores that are now at great risk um, did this 10 or 15 years ago. They created the living room for the community. They served coffee. They had the comfortable chairs. So, you know, this has been a very, very common practice. But I'm not sure that as librarians we spend enough time doing that ourselves. We're very good at talking to ourselves, and here I am probably talking primarily to an audience of librarians. But we, we do have to get out of our own uh, profession and, and start paying attention to what's going on around us. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be talking a bit about that later. 
I'd like you to uh, consider libraries um, rather than human physiology as I read the next statement. Let me stay with this slide. A trait is a particular characteristic such as eye color, height, or behavior that is expressed when an organism's genes interact with its environment. Genes vary within populations, so organisms show heritable differences, variations in their traits. The main cause of a variation is mutation, which changes the sequence of a gene. Remember, you're thinking about libraries. Altered genes are then inherited by offspring. I'm thinking of new, new librarians, those who are going to be graduating. There can also be a transfer of genes. A trait is as, as a particular characteristic, such as eye color, hair color, height, or behavior. I'm going to skip through. This is rather long. Over many generations, mutations produce successive small random changes in traits. Libraries have, over time, found ways in which to reorganize, found ways in which to reach different elements of the community, found ways in which to change, mutate, and move in a direction that makes sense. And at the end of the day, I think that I am still hopeful that we will push through this sea change of digitization and uh, come out the other end, maybe looking a little different and a little more evolved. So repositioning the library is where I'm going next. And um, Urban Libraries Council is certainly not the only organization looking at this. I think anybody working in the profession um, sh should and probably is considering what's going on. Um, public libraries, like most libraries, have been in the digital e-books business for about five years. And it's as though it's just being discovered today. And that's because we finally have seen the devices catch up to what we're trying to do, you know, with Kindles and iPads that are rolling out the door as fast as, as people can afford to buy them and hopefully dropping in price. Um, you know, we're not at the standard yet where everything works with the library, but we do have resources. So the 11 million Americans will own at least one digital reading device by the end of September of this year, and that, that's a very large number. And we, we heard recently from Amazon that people are buying three times more books on their e-readers than they would with printed products. Now, I take that as a good sign. That means there's a lot of reading going on out there and that it's, it's going to be important for people to still be able to identify and find um, the resources to add to their readers. And not everybody is in a position to pay. And that's what public libraries have always been up to this point, is a place where those who can't afford to pay or choose not to pay but use the public's resources um, have come to public libraries. So the Council of State Libraries Association um, has an e-book feasibility study that's just come out. And I, it's, it's rather lengthy, and I've touched upon a few areas. But a couple of the things that were pointed out in the study is that um, e-books uh, grow within the public, as they grow within the public's consciousness, more devices and economic models arise to vend them. And the question being, how will it affect libraries' core audience, um, the, the senses or the the study resulted in the fact that they think a tipping point is not far off. And I would have to agree. Um, we, as a profession, have to consider the shift and um, not wait for it to happen to us again, but rather get involved. And one of the things that came up at a fairly recent uh, program of Urban Libraries Council 
um, in June at the American Library Association conference was we had a very healthy discussion about content and who will own content and who can either purchase or lease content. And this is probably the crux of this conversation, and that is um, if, if libraries can't even get to the content because uh, some private business or corporation owns the content and chooses to distribute it in a very limited way, then, then we are going to be um, at risk of going out of that part of our business. Um, how do we get around that? Well, you're probably aware also that there was a Google Books settlement, um, book scan settlement um, under discussion. It's not final. By November, we should have a final ruling by the judge. And one of the things we're hoping for, because there was a lot of pushback, is greater access, not a limitation of only one terminal per library, to access all of these scanned documents that Google has been working with universities uh, and New York Public Library to incorporate. Well, that would be a good thing. I mean, we we're hoping for a better outcome than the first. Um, but there are some other ways in which uh, we probably should be getting involved, and that is to look at legislative solutions to preserve the, um, uh, the, the first sale doctrine, which is what, it, what it's referred to. And I'm seeing an attorney in the audience, so <laughs> she can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but my understanding of the first sale doctrine is it does give us, the library and, and, and others, the right to buy that first book. But public libraries or libraries have the ability to lend that book then as often as they, they choose. And um, that's something that we really want to uh, retain. So um, that's something we have to pay attention to. It's, uh, you know, our, our job as librarians is probably a little bit more complex or complex in a different way than it once was. Um, it's also very exciting, and we have an opportunity to shape it. Some of the other findings in the Causal Report um, are, are pointing to what we might think of doing. We might think of having devices in our libraries to lend. Um, we might think of having tech toolbars where the public may come in and actually you know, use devices that before they make a purchase. Um, uh, some libraries are already uh, actively doing this. Uh, I know in my library we spend a lot of time, uh, we do buy every device. We buy at least one and usually seven or eight. And uh, we practice on them. We make sure our website and, we, and all of our resources are viewable in every format. And if you've moved on to the iPad, for instance, um, as I just did recently, you find that the scale is just all wrong. <laughs> you know, our, our wonderful Boopsy uh, uh, product that gets us onto every iPhone just looks awful on an iPad. So we're, we're still running to catch up with that. Uh, they also found that access, um, you know, there's a, a great deal of, of interest, high interest in access, but um, the low usability um, is, it could be problematic, and we need to find ways in which to, to live and work in this kind of environment with all these digital resources. Um, we may want to leverage better what some, of, some libraries are already doing. We have many consortia. Uh, we have state contracts. We have uh, collaborations that we should be um, coming together more often and in a bigger way in order to get more purchasing power um, out, of, out of our limited resources. And then going beyond content is something I'm going to spend a few minutes on, so I'm going to skip to the next 
I've touched upon a lot of these. These are areas in which libraries might want to dip their toe. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on library as laboratory because I'm particularly interested in that, and I think you will be too. And Kozla talked again about uh, three future themes, assuring access, um, data and leadership, and living literature, which, which is something that really resonated with me. And again, I'll be talking about that. So this is, and I'm sorry for the screenshot, I, I learned a little too late how to get that screen full image before I, I copied it. Um, this is the Aarhus, A-A-R-H-U-S, University Transformation Lab, and this is available on YouTube. Um, I think it dates back to 2006 where they did some experimental work, and um, since then the, the Aarhus Public Library has also done some work, and they're trying to figure out what the Library of the Future looks like, and, and how, how will people come together and interact, and what kind of information will be delivered and or shared or brought to the library. Um, this is just one uh, example of an interactive activity for kids. Uh, I believe they have a map on the floor and they're able by stepping on some of the pads to draw out some additional information um, about a geographic area. They focused on uh, literature lab, news lab, music lab, exhibition lab, and something they call the square. The music lab was quite fun. They, um, they had a production area where they have the instruments, a production zone, they called it. Um, they provided the furnishings, um, audio, uh, and, and uh, obviously uh, video, and then computer equipment to then support recordings of, of music. And these are drop-in environments. They set this up for a period of time and had lots and lots of uh, community residents, both at the university and at the public library, come and participate. This is another part of the music lab. This is the audio uh, experience, you know, where you have that cone of, of, of sound. The exhibition lab allowed you to put your whole person uh, in, into the space and to have photographs of people who'd been there uh, prior to your involvement. And you get to see a little bit about you know, who's, who's in this space and who's actually, um, uh, I don't know, leaving an imprint. It's, it's a little bit of a stretch. It's much better if you see this running as a video. Uh, so I, I, but it allows you to go exploring, to express yourself. Um, and then, uh, of course, look at previous users and what they've contributed. The square I found to be most like a university commons. This was uh, an exceptional and fun space, uh, some of it planned, some of it unplanned. Um, everything from games to uh, public speaking to an interactive, um, again, they used every surface, uh, projection of images on the floor, questions that you could project on the floor and somebody could pick up with another device and respond. So it really allowed the participant to have a full um, sensory experience. It was very exciting. Uh, another uh, vision of the square. They used a, a large, wide open space and they uh, created, um, you know, defined areas to try and, and give a little separation to some of the activities. 
Now, this is at the public library. Um, in, at the Arhus Public Library, the uh, kids had an interactive map. This was of the local community, and they were, uh, it's RFID enabled. It's an interactive table, so each one of the um, uh, components, like the hot air balloon or some of the other uh, pieces, every, every child has a piece, they can move that around. The RFID tag lands on top of the RFID, you know, part of the table, and then uh, an image will pop up, and they can learn a little bit more about something in that community. Um, I thought this was fun. Obviously, the kids are very engaged. They love the, you know, the, the ease of use, and then also the, the technology, I think, adds a, a fun component. Um, it's not at all unusual for public libraries to think about having that sort of exploratorium experience in the library uh, and the, the, the bringing the kids together and having them interact independent of, of structure, which I think is really fun. I'm going to dance away from, from the digital sort of conversation and talk a little bit about uh, my library and strategic planning because this is something that is so fundamental uh, to move any organization forward. And yet, um, we had no strategic plan before 2008. Uh, we had had long-range plans. We um, were religious about a three-year technology plan, uh, which worked very well for us for quite a number of years. We've been rolling out you know, all types of technology. Um, but it only takes you so far. It sort of deals with the immediate, finds some operational efficiencies, but it doesn't really address moving that good organization forward to becoming a great organization. It doesn't really help you to um, delve into the community and find out what it is the public wants from you. Um, and it was, you know, something that I certainly knew that we needed. It was certainly something that coming off of um, library ballot measures, and we had two of them in, the, in 2004 and 2005, the second one passed, thankfully, um, that we otherwise would be um, chasing down all kinds of divergent plans that happen when you have multiple facilities in multiple cities and a lot of different drivers. So this was me saying, you know, our resources will only go so far. Let's try and move forward together and figure out um, uniquely what might happen in a community to achieve a single goal that the library has. Okay. So just in a nutshell, um, we identified through a strategic planning process that took about six months that uh, a rather large percentage of our immediate residents in our district did not actually have library cards, or if they had cards, they weren't using them actively. And so we de defined an active card holder as someone who uses a library um, at least one time in 12 months. <laughs> Doesn't seem very active to me, but that, that was our definition. Um, and we were able to uh, survey uh, the non-users. This took a bit of, bit of work and parsing out um, those who already had cards, but we surveyed the non-users and the non-active cardholders and came up with what we're calling a cluster that defines the different groups in our community that um, are not using us. And now we're, uh, we're starting to work on um, four areas that 
we feel have sort of that low-hanging fruit. They're, you know, these are the ones that are most likely to get a card, most likely to use it. And why is it all about the card? Well, the card actually indicates that they use the library more. They hopefully then value it, find the libraries re relevant, and it also has an impact on their life their education, their children's, you know, schooling, their parents' activities during the day, whatever it might be, self-directed, formal learning, uh, pleasurable reading, cultural um, uh, connections. So we really feel that that places the library and the community in a very nice way. So the areas we're focusing on are kids' sake, uh, resourceful readers, free agents, and the borrowers. And um, you can see there are, it's really about half the pie. And over here we have uh, the Do Not Disturbs and uh, another group called External Enthusiasts. And the Do Not Disturbs, that, that, was a, that was a controversial name to give a cluster. Uh, we kicked that around quite a bit. But what it really means is these are individuals that just are not inclined. They, they buy whatever they need, subscribe to whatever they want to subscribe to. Um, you know, they, they just, in the course of their day, just have no time and no need for the library. But it doesn't mean that they don't value that the community has a library. And it also doesn't mean that they might not vote to keep a library open, or they might not contribute to a friend's organization. So we haven't given up on that group. Uh, we just have sort of set them aside for the moment, and we're now starting to work with our friends, our foundations, and our local library commissions in each community to see how they can reach out to that group. What these clusters really help us with is to figure out where these people are and what their sort of behavior is of borrowing, and uh, we will start to tailor our messages to a certain audience or, and or our presentations and programs and try and draw them into the building, onto our website, and in many cases draw us out into the community where they are. So it's, it's a really wonderful amount of research that we expect will be quite useful for a number of years. This just gives you an overview of, of our cardholders. I know I'm getting way down in the weeds here, but um, in general, and this may look a little shocking, but in general, we have about 26% of our population that's in our immediate district of nine cities that actively use their card. And um, we're much busier than that because we are in the Silicon Valley where there are many other city library operations and we have uh, a wonderful reciprocity agreement in California so anybody can get a card with us and many do but we really are focused on our district residents. Um, not the least of, of reasons why is that we do go back to the voters every 10 years and we don't want to end up hearing, well, what have you done for me lately when we, when we show up? We think we have a lot of great services. We need to find a way to demonstrate and or react to this population and find out why they're not uh, using the library. Just touching upon this, there are new models um, of service and um, in the immediate audience, I have a number of people here from the San Jose Public Library and thank you for coming. Um, and San Jose has always done a, a really fine job of um, you know, developing a model that um, 
kind of pushes down those sort of mechanical operations and, you know, automates where necessary and then really focuses in on um, service and collections and they have uh, a number of branch libraries. We complement one another very well in this county and um, uh, it's, it's just great because they reach a very large population, more than twice the size of my district. So um, at Santa Clara County, we're also looking at different staff and operational models. Uh, we have done some of what you've seen in San Jose and probably read about. Um, we are looking to use our facilities, which are a little bit larger than a normal branch size. Our, our libraries range from 28,000 to 60,000 square feet. Um, we don't have a central library, so everything gets pushed out to the community libraries. And um, with these models, we think we have an opportunity to uh, repurpose space in the building. And this is an area that we're going to be focusing quite a bit on. came across a book on um, multipliers. Are you a multiplier? Um, and um, it, it caught my eye, and I'll, I'll just give you a very little brief. But multipliers, how the best leaders make everyone smarter by Liz Wiseman and uh, Greg McCune. I think is how you say that. Um, the way to know whether you're a multiplier or a diminisher, and this kind of plays into hiring well, if you're going to be doing all these innovative and creative things, you may have to look for a complement of skill that's not in your staff right now. Um, you as librarians may want to bring that to the table. What is it that you can offer um, that may feed into a particular library strategic plan? And in this case, do you grow people's intelligence by engaging it? Or do you do all the thinking, kill others' ideas, and make all the decisions? And they're very unique management styles, and they probably exist in every organization. And uh, I have to admit, I've not read this whole book, but I, I got into a few chapters, and I thought, oh, there's, there's a lot to be said for this. And, you know, at any one time, we could dance any one of us between these two behaviors. So I just kind of throw that out there that, you know, you, you don't realize the impression you leave or the influence you have on others sometimes. And um, it's, it's important to, to really think about this. Are you in a committee? Are you, you know, working on some other group project? Are you out in the community? You have to be careful not to crush those ideas when they're really young and, um, and, and to engage others and let people make some, some of the decisions as well. I was looking for another example, um, and I'm kind of touching upon some things that new librarians don't always consider when they're headed out the door, and that is that um, there may be a day when you're going to be a new supervisor or a new manager or a new director, and it's not too soon to start thinking about how you're going to uh, move forward with your own career. And um, Chip Conley's kind of an interesting guy. He uh, um, he, he takes a look at the, the Maslow Pyramid and, you know, he, he talks about how it saved his company. He, he talks about um, when you work really close to him, he's less likely to recognize your efforts. Um, he, he wants to uh, recognize those at the line level. And I thought that was kind of an interesting thing because we're always comfortable with the people that we touch, you know, the, the person next door or the person who works at the desk with us or someone that we work with um, quite closely. But we don't always um, have the opportunity to have as much contact with people at the line level. So to kind of keep that in mind. 
he used a lot of energy to restructure how he meets. He likes short meetings. He likes stand-up meetings. Um, I have yet to try that one. That was kind of interesting. Um, he likes to end meetings on a positive note, creates an environment of recognition, um, and, you know, there's sort of the new rule, the person who gives recognition needs to be from a different department than the person being recognized. So trying, trying to build that into your organization or participate on that level. Culture change is critical to probably everything I've talked about so far today. It is, it is um, difficult for some. Um, and it, it always makes me scratch my head and say, how could that possibly be? We are in a culture that has been changing over and over and over again. As we adopt new practices, as we try to uh, find our way through this new digital world, um, you know, there has never been a library that hasn't gone through significant changes. This statement stayed with me. People only adopt new patterns of behavior when the old are no longer effective. And keeping that in mind might help you uh, strategically to try and push through uh, whatever change, small or large, you may be uh, addressing. And lastly, that the uh, people change when the pain of changing is less than the pain of staying the same or when they see that everyone else has changed. We do a lot of piloting in our organization. We do that for a number of reasons. It's, it's a little less risky to roll out something new if you do it in a pilot fashion, um, kind of work through the kinks, develop the policies and procedures. Um, but it also opens the opportunity for every other facility or, or department that has to uh, push through the same um, project to come and observe, um, to provide some feedback, um, and to not perhaps be the first out the door. And it, it varies on the project. We have seen some that used to hang back and always want to be the last one to, to go through the, the sweeping change, whatever that might be. Um, uh, the next time raise their hand and say, you know, we want to be the first ones to do this. We think we can handle this project. Um, but it's, it's just something really helpful to keep in mind. I was asked to look at your core competencies and um, to see, you know, what in your core competencies might um, be, uh, uh, you know, are they, are they current, are they apparent, are they useful uh, to what's going on today? I know this slide isn't, it's kind of squeezed, but um, I thought that applying the fundamental principles of planning, management, and marketing advocacy was a particularly um, important in today's world. Um, we often find that advocacy or uh, publicity or marketing, these are not terms that uh, some librarians are particularly comfortable with. Uh, in, in the course of my career, I don't think I've ever not done this. Uh, this is something that's just so core and so fundamental. No matter if it's just a series of story times. You still have to know who your target audience or your target market is. You still have to promote summer reading by going out and visiting the schools in the spring. Um, there's still an element of management, a lot of logistics around a delivery of any program, and, um, and planning. And, you know, some of our best planners, frankly, are our children's librarians because they are planning so many weeks out and they often have uh, performers or other authors or, or, or others' times that they have to schedule, other people's times. Contributing to the cultural, economic, educational, and social well-being of our communities, um, again, is not new uh, for public libraries, but I, th I see a stepped-up role in this area. I think we have 
um, a responsibility, but also a fabulous opportunity to engage in greater partnerships and collaborations with um, institutions and civic and social groups in our communities um, than we ever have had. In fact, I think it's going to be absolutely essential um, in order for the public library of the future to survive or to be around. Um, and so I, I think those are, are two that I could really um, support and I don't know exactly what kind of coursework is behind or project work and I'd, I'd be uh, very interested in exploring that a little bit further. There are some things that Urban Libraries Council um, has really honed in on and uh, Governing Magazine just interviewed Susan Benton who's the um, CEO and president of Urban Libraries Council. Um, in, the, in this particular article, they talked about libraries as, you know, being hammered by budgets and cutting more than just hours. Um, there, in, in the last week, has been quite a flurry of um, articles about the privatization of public libraries. Um, a lot's going on in California, but it's a national conversation. It hit the New York Times. Uh, Library Journal's been covering it. And um, as a county librarian in California and active with the county, California County Librarians Association, there's a, a lot of conversation about, you know, what can we do to prepare better, to position ourselves better. And it's not unique to county librarians. It's, it's also cities. And some of the things that um, we have seen locally um, I, I can speak to two of them specifically. I did have one city in my county consider pulling out of the county system and uh, operating a private library was one of maybe four options. And um, we worked very closely with that city and um, suggested, and thankfully they did, they hired somebody to do a bit of research to find out really what was the best governance structure for their community. Um, it, you know, it's, it's one thing for an elected official to say, you know, I think it's time to leave, and we're a big enough city, and uh, let's let's go forward and, and just you know cut the ties. And it's another thing to go th go through a very thoughtful process and um, consider all of the costs. And one of the things that we probably don't do enough of, uh, and especially when you have a, a sort of centralized support delivering services out as as we do here and as many libraries do, is to really put a value on what it is you're delivering when you have centralized ordering and receiving and shipping, what it is you deliver in training and development of, of staffs, um, the kinds of things that only a, a central operation can do that frees up the time of librarians working out in the libraries to deliver more one-on-one -on -one service. So um, we spent a lot of time. We have a great report. Um, I'm happy to make that available. It's something that will be on the agenda of this California County Librarians Association meeting in November at the, at the California Library Association annual conference. And another uh, county, neighboring county, did find that LSSI was really much more seriously considered by one of their cities. And before they even got to the point of putting an RFP on the street, 
um, sat back and, and drafted about a 20-page report of all the programs, services, and, and funds and, and how that all flowed into that particular community. Um, they never issued that RFP. So um, we can't just sit back and presume that our, our cities and counties, who are all struggling as well with their own local budget issues, um, are going to just think that, oh, you know, it's, it's always going to be there. The library is the best thing in the world. They are looking at every opportunity. And yet, I have to ask the question, why libraries? Is, is it just because, you know, one private group showed up and said, have you thought? I mean, why not HR? Why not maintenance? Why not, you know, some other service that's provided by our city or county? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a fighter, and I think it's, it's you, you have to speak up. You just have to get your, your thoughts in order, figure out what works best in, in a presentation for your community. But cities, counties, states, you know, government has a right to look at, you know, outsourcing if that's the appropriate thing for them to do. And I think we all have um, a good reason to be concerned and, and very much need to be prepared. Don't wait for the crisis. Get your thoughts in order now. Well, we've touched upon the reduced hours. It, it is a, an alarming number of uh, urban libraries in this case, reporting fewer hours um, compared to a 15% reduction for libraries overall. And urban libraries do support most of the population of the U.S. It's a very significant number. Um, Urban Libraries Council has published, uh, not all that long ago, a wonderful, um, uh, I actually brought it, I'll show it, the Making Cities Stronger document. And this is Public Library Contributions to Local Economic Development. It's available on the Urban Libraries website. It's just urbanlibraries.org. It is uh, at, at no cost. Um, it, it does touch upon some areas in which uh, urban libraries most specifically are offering services. Um, everything from social services and healthcare assistance to job hunting, you know, work, workplace, workforce development. Um, islands of public safety, that is a very common um, service, I guess if you want to call it that, um, in, in any urban library. Um, and we are seeing more and more of that push out to suburban libraries as well, particularly as transit improves. Wireless access, free public access to computers. Um, those seem like very common services, but 10 years ago they were not so common if available at all. So um, we have a, a, a great opportunity to really influence and, and support economic development in the community. Um, businesses will come where there are thriving libraries, where there are thriving schools, uh, where their complement of uh, workforce is available. Um, so it's, it's, it can be a real magnet. Um, let's see, public libraries are learning places. That's a, a very large component this year. Um, uh, transformational and innovation are sort of the three legs of the stool for Urban Libraries Council. And Susan um, almost always comments that the problem is that many leaders think of libraries as they existed in the 60s and 70s. If you think about sort of the average age of many leaders, that may be changing a bit, but it's still common. 
Um, I've also heard the phrase that most people, um, and maybe we could say leaders, recall the library of their junior high or middle school years, and they haven't really been back to visit um, in any significant way, perhaps at a university, but not a public library. So we, we have to get over that hurdle. And we would like for um, local officials, local leaders, to really think about urban libraries as, as a magnet, as I talked about. Um, it's, it's very important that we sort of build these arguments. I've, I've now started to build a file of, you know, loosely I'll call them white papers, you know, on sort of the major issues of the day. It's really important as the spokesperson for a library or even for a community library or branch library that you have your thoughts in order before, you know, the media shows up on your doorstep and starts asking the questions. It doesn't always work this way, but there are some very common themes that we should all be prepared to respond to. And, um, and we do good stuff, and we just don't always package it the right way. So be thinking about this now. Seattle Public Library had a, a grand opening in 2004, and I know San Jose's was not long after. Was it 2005? It was. And um, it's not unusual to see the number of daily visitors double and have thousands of people coming to a particular um, downtown in the case of Seattle. I'm sure San Jose is the same way. In some of our smaller communities, uh, we do find that the, the increase uh, is exponential for about three years before it plateaus. And so this isn't unique to urban libraries. We have a, a community library in Gilroy that's in a temporary space that's actually about 3,000 square feet smaller than what they occupied before, but it's new. And, and it feels new, and it's about four blocks off the location it used to be, and right on the main drag through the city of Gilroy. And they are finding all kinds of new patronage, people who walk by and happen to see the library. And their new building's under construction, so it'll be very exciting for them. But even that small dose of, of you know, fresh paint, new carpet, and uh, in this case, a, a new location, uh, really brought a lot of new people in. There's a lot of activity with uh, library branches moving into um, sort of, you know, not non-traditional spaces. Malls have, have been common. Transit centers um, are, are gaining uh, interest, other high-traffic locations. Um, you know, people are spending money uh, as, as they're moving around from, um, you know, business to library to the school. They're, you know, they're spending money on gas, unfortunately, or maybe on electric cars. But they, they are shopping and they are, they are dropping some money, and, and libraries can be part of that. Anchor institutions, another term that's, that's often used and uh, you might want to become familiar with. Um, we have found that in certain locations, um, you can have an entire redevelopment of, of an area occur. Um, Seattle found that. They were in a, a part of the city uh, where they cited their new library was uh, needing a, a fresh look. They really needed to bring this part of the city up. And by locating the library there, it began to attract other 
um, services and uh, became a, a real attraction. I think they now have two sports uh, facilities uh, in that area. Lots of restaurants have popped up. We had us on a smaller scale in the city of Milpitas. Um, the city had a midtown development to go back to their old Main Street. The, the population shift and where City Hall was had shifted quite a bit. And they found that um, they couldn't build their new library next to City Hall because they just didn't have room for parking. We spent about six months trying to site that library on this, this small parcel of land and eventually ended up relocating to Midtown. And Midtown was, you know, next to um, the rail yard in an area that had a lot of um, uh, auto support. Uh, it was just kind of funky spaces. The city yard. Uh, it had some hazardous material stuff that had to be, you know, excavated out of the ground near an overpass. And it may not sound like a very appealing location, but they had started a small residential development across the street was a planned new senior affordable housing and adjacent to that a new county health clinic. And by putting those three sort of anchor institutions there, this is now a very thriving uh, area. And um, the, the offset for us is that we had a lot of new neighbors and we had wonderful opportunities to start to bring in, you know, more people from the clinic to talk about health issues and services and um, this, the affordable senior housing. Of course, they could walk. They could walk across the street and they also did a lot of work um, to streetscape that area so that it was very walkable. They narrowed it. It's only two lanes at that point, not four, and it was just wonderful. Again, I've touched upon redevelopment. Uh, this is another example in Rockville, Maryland. Susan Kent, I grabbed this off of a blog that she had responded to, and she was quoting Isaac Asimov. Uh, Susan Kent is the former city librarian for Los Angeles Public Library. So when I read about the way in which library funds are being cut and cut, I can only think that American society has found one more way to destroy itself. It's very poetic. Um, She's actually a very positive person, so um, I know that that was a, you know, a, a thoughtful way of describing what's going on today. I thought I might have a few minutes to touch upon this, and I, I really have, but again, new librarians and those of you working already in the field, um, I, I hope there are many of you that will think about moving up in, in your organizations. Um, it's, it's a really wonderful opportunity to help shape the future of libraries. These are some of the traits that um, you know come to mind when you're thinking about being both a successful librarian and also a success <clears throat> successful leader. Flexible, adaptable, nimble, on top of things, what's occurring now, constantly mining or scanning the environment, and knowing the role of the library in the community. Again, Urban Libraries Council, I urge you to take a look. It's uh, urbanlibraries.org. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful organization with, that was originally founded by trustees, and um, the board itself is made up of trustees, um, a few members of the public at large, and uh, library directors. And we are um, working very hard on behalf of urban public libraries to uh, bring forward issues that need discussing, as well as um, finding new partners and collaborations. There's a, a new grant that's going forward. It's a Gates grant, and ULC is going to be the lead on that, and we're, we're pretty excited about it.
Again, the core purpose, to lead, innovate, and transform. It's an organization not unlike PLA or ALA that tries to prepare leaders in the library field uh, so that they uh, can perform better. So back to that initial question, is it too late? Is it too late for libraries? No, uh, but only if we step up to the challenge. I think we need to be innovative and creative uh, leaders at all levels, and I do mean at all levels. Collaboration and partnering will strengthen the community and the library. Rethinking public spaces, it's no longer just about books. We've seen a lot of transition already in our reference collections, and I, I don't see that stopping. And to seek inspiration from all disciplines. And thank you very much for your time.